Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, just you run whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come. And what will happen? Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over, over the other half he eats meat and roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. Half of it is burned in the fire, and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I bow, shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, 
A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and and will be glorified in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of the Lord, says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Let's pray. Father, you are great. You are so great beyond anything we can ever understand. And yet you love us, and you desire us to hear your words this day. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds and our spirits so that we can receive what Reed will bring. Lord, anoint his lips. Touch him, God, so that he delivers all your counsel, all your will. And may may your blessing be upon him, Father, and upon our ears. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. I think it's really important to every once in a while just ask yourself, what is being a Christian all about? Uh, Is Christianity about just being a good person or at least being a better person than you used to be? Is Is it about improving your life in some way, improving your marriage perhaps or your home? Is it reading your Bible more or praying? Is it... Is it finding your purpose in life? You know, Christian, I became a Christian, found my purpose in life. Is it about just doing right, not doing wrong? Is it, is it about having or know, knowing and having correct theology? Well, all of these things are good, of course, and they have some association with the Christian life, but they are not the center of Christianity. The center of the Christian life is God. Himself. Uh, the goal of salvation is God. The goal of salvation is fellowship with God and to know and to enjoy God and to have peace with God, to find rest for your soul 
in God, to find your hungers and thirsts satisfied in God, to find God himself to be your friend and your Lord and your shepherd and your all in all. Peter said something very interesting in 1 Peter. He said, Jesus Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. So far, that sounds like something we've known and heard, right? He died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. All that Jesus did on the cross for you was to get you to God. He tore open the veil into the Holy of Holies to bring you to God. He opened the way for you to know God intimately and experientially. For all your need and all that you need is found in God. And it's like Jesus said, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die to get you to God because everything that you need is in God. Everything your soul hungers for is in God. He is the fountain of life to which Christ has brought us. The theme of Isaiah 44 is the uniqueness of God to save, to satisfy, and to help his people. There is no security in anyone but him. There is no forgiveness in anyone but him. No help, no real joy in any but him. There is no rock but him. No one can oversee your life for good but this amazing sovereign God who loves you. Therefore, it is pathetic. It is absurd. It is senseless to turn to any other person or thing for help or hope or salvation. Idols are useless. I mean, that's one of the core messages of this this passage. God is the real God. God is the only real God. So devote yourself to this God. Put your trust in the real God and only in the real God. He is the only rock, and he alone is sufficient for your salvation and your needs. And the conclusion of this chapter, really the point, the application uh, that the Lord himself makes through the prophet Isaiah is this, return to me or come to me. God says to his people, come to me, return to me. And we are to uh, keep turning to God. We are to keep turning our affections toward God, to cleave to him with all of our hearts, worship him, love him, trust him, admire him solely and exclusively. He is the unique God, and we are to singularly focus all of our affection and trust and worship upon him. A man by the name of Gerhard Terstegen, whom I've been reading some uh, lately, said, The Holy Spirit produces in the soul an unspeakable, profound veneration, admiration, reverence in the presence of the exalted majesty of God. That is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. That is what Isaiah was calling the people of Israel to a profound and unspeakable, profound veneration, admiration, reverence 
for this exalted, majestic God who loves us and called us to himself. Peter Toller said, One drop of God's presence far surpasses all other delights and the sweetness of any pleasure that comes through anything else in life. No tongue can really explain, no heart can conceive of how great is the peace, the joy of real experience with God. C.S. Lewis said, he was talking about the Psalms, but it applies to Isaiah too. C.S. Lewis said, in the Psalms, I find an experience, okay? I find an experience fully God-centered, asking of God no gift more urgently than his presence, the gift of himself, joyous to the highest degree and unmistakably real. And we find the same call, the same God-centered call, the same God-centered theme here in Isaiah. David said, speaking of those who take refuge in the Lord, he said, You, God, God, you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. Do you see God as a river of delights? Do you see God as the river of delights for his people? Is this the God you worship and know? David saw God as someone who called him into a relationship of, of festivity, if you will, and pleasure, uh, which is far better than the darkness of sin and the temporary pleasure of this world. Augustine said, O Lord, when I turn to thee, with all the desire of my soul, I am emptied of myself. And for me, there is no more any labor nor any burden. And my life is filled with you. And you dwell in me and give me to drink of your love so that I forget all sorrow and pain. These are just men who are in some way attempting to describe the sweetness, the loveliness, the fullness of of this God who they have come into, some, come into relationship with. And once we experience God in any measure through our Lord Jesus Christ, our souls are attracted to him. We are, we are drawn to him. There is a longing deep within to behold the, the, the glory of God. Deep within us, something calls out for this wonderful and all-satisfying God that we have come to know. Deep calls to deep, as, as the psalm says. David said, My soul thirsts for you, and my body even longs for you. My heart and my flesh cry out for you, the living God. As a deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for God, for the living God. What does all this have to do with Isaiah 44? Everything. God is presenting himself to his people. It is God himself that, he, that is being offered to you. It is God himself that is being offered to his people. He's saying to his people, this, this is who I am. Return to me as your only God. And he is doing the same thing this morning right here. He offers himself to you. And he says, this is who I am. Behold your God and come to me or return to me or keep coming to me. 
So who is this God? Who is this real God that is revealed to us in Isaiah? Not any, anything that is made up by any person's imagination, nothing, no idol, no image that anyone has made. Who is the real God that is revealed to us here in Isaiah 44? Well, let's, let's let him tell us. He said, I am the God who chose you. Twice he says, Jacob, whom I have chosen. When he's addressing Israel, he says to them, Jacob, whom I have chosen. God chose Israel to be his people. In Christ, he also chose you to be his, too. He chose you. He speaks to you this morning as he did to Israel. When he addressed Israel, he said, Israel, whom I have chosen. When he speaks to you, he says, Tom, whom I have chosen, or Sherry, whom I have chosen. This is a God who amazingly wants you and me and chooses us to belong to him. A God who says, I chose you. You belong to me. He said, I am the God who made you. Verse 2, I am the God who made you, who formed you in the womb. You know, God knows you through and through. He's known you from the beginning. He made you and formed you, created you in your mother's womb. He knows you better than you yourself know yourself. He knows you better than your mother or your parents know you. He, he created you. Each, each of us, in a very real sense, is a direct creation of God. We owe him everything, including our very breath from the time that we first were conceived in our mother's womb. And the point here in Isaiah is we do not bow down to a God we make. We bow down to a God who made us. He said, I am the God who will help you. Verse 2, God refers to himself as he who will help you. If you want to know what God is like, God is like this. God is a God who will help you. You know, we sometimes view the Christian life as us helping God. But the truth is, he is our help. He is our strength. He is our deliverer. We do not carry God. He carries us. And I'll tell you, whenever, if, if the Christian life to you is, it, it feels like you're is carrying around this big burden, like you're kind of carrying the load. If you're carrying God, then something is seriously wrong with your conception of it. God carries you. God carries us. We do not bear our burdens alone. He bears us and carries us with all of our sorrows and our sufferings and cares. He is so willing to do this, he invites us to cast all of our cares upon him. You can, in fact, you can cast all of your cares, all of your sins, all of your pains, all of your sorrows into the unfathomable depths of God and his love, and he will help you. In Hebrews, it says, God himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. No matter what you go through, and you may have a lonely heart and humble path right now, you can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. Not because you are some, you know, some, somehow you have done something to, in some unique way to get him to help you. That's just what God is like. That what, that's what he loves to be for you. That is who God is. He is a God who is a helper who will never forsake you or ever desert you. 
And you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. He said, I am the God who, re- who relieves your fears. Do not be afraid. Even entering captivity, God said to his people, you do not need to be afraid of what will happen to you, for I am with you to help you. A couple of chapters ago, Isaiah 43, um, fantastic promise. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. For I am the Lord, your God. What promises? Are you passing through deep waters this morning? Some of you are. Are you walking through fire? I mean, is it that bad? Like you're just walking through fire? Some of you are. Some of you feel that way. And God says to you, the same as he said to his people hundreds of years ago, he says to you, I am the Lord your God. You will not be burned. The rivers will not overflow you. Your life will not be destroyed. You will be all right. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be afraid, O Christian, my servant. He said, I am the God who gives you my spirit. The the, the flow is really, do not fear. I'm with you to help you. For I will pour out water on the dry ground. Verse 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on you and your offspring. This is a promise, I believe, of, of literal physical blessing to the land. But even more important... It is a promise to pour out the blessing of God's Spirit on God's people. And what is God's Spirit? It is God himself. God is saying, I will pour myself into you and upon you. This is the reason you need not fear. There's a parallel between land and our hearts here. Without God... Our hearts are like land without water, barren, parched, nothing but dust. But with water comes satisfaction to the dry ground, growth, fruitfulness, things turn green. And God has that same effect, that same life-giving effect on our, on our bodies, on our souls, on our hearts, on us. God's Spirit is like streams in the desert. And I, I love that phrase. It's a title of an old devotional book, Streams in the Desert. Um, but God's Spirit is like streams in the desert to our souls. I will pour out my water. I will pour out my spirit. God pours himself into you and upon you. Spurgeon said, Maybe you feel that you are in a low, sad state of feeling, or that you have lost the joy of your salvation. Or maybe you are conscious that you are a barren, dry ground, that you are like a barren, dry ground, that you are not as useful or fruitful as your heart desires. Then here's the promise you need. I will pour out my spirit on him that is thirsty. He said, I am the God who is eternal. Verse 6, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no other God. God was in the beginning. He'll be there in the end. And in the end, there is no one else. He is not going away. 
He will never go away. He will never fade away, never become irrelevant, never disappear. He will always be there. He will be in the end as he was in the beginning. He will always be there to love you, to protect you, to show you mercy and grace throughout all eternity. You know, I love that in Ephesians. It talks about he's, he saved us by his grace so that in the ages to come he might show us kindness. You know, God's going to, he's going to be there always to show us grace and kindness and mercy throughout all eternity if you belong to him. He said, I am the God who rules history for the good of my people. Verse 7, I declare what will happen. I rule over what will happen. Is there anyone else who can do this? Let him proclaim it. Of course, no one else could answer that but God. God alone knows the past. He alone can predict the future. We see so vividly here throughout the whole book of Isaiah, and especially in this chapter, God is running the show. Uh, it has been said that history is his story. Um, and it's so true. God is running history. The world in the time of Israel's captivity, which, which is what this book of Isaiah is about, God's people were being sent into captivity in Babylon. They would be away from uh, their homes, from their temple, from the city, Jerusalem, from their towns. Um, but the world in the time of Israel's captivity would, have, would never have believed that Jerusalem and the temple would have been rebuilt 70 years after, after the Chaldeans absolutely demolished it. I mean, it would just look, it would have been, they would have just considered, that place is, that place is gone. I mean, it's, it's over and done with, destroyed. The world, it would have been so hard to believe that this temple and city would have been rebuilt. But it was rebuilt, exactly as God had foretold. The world would have scoffed at the idea that Judah would be repopulated and rebuilt by the returning exiles. And no one would have believed this prediction that the Jews would be liberated by a non-Jew, some guy named Cyrus, yet all of this happened 150 years after the Lord predicted it. And what makes this so amazing is that in captivity, if you just think about it, Israel would not even be considered a nation at that point. They would be a bunch of humbled, defeated, conquered people. After 70 years, most of them would never have even seen the land of Israel. I mean, they were virtually extinct, likely to just be absorbed into the peoples and nations around them, never to be heard from or seen again as a distinct people. And yet the Lord put his, in, his reputation on the line and he said, My people will return from captivity. I will restore Jerusalem and the temple and their homes, and I will use a guy named Cyrus who will authorize and support the rebuilding of the city. Here it is, verse 24. I am the Lord who has made all things, who overthrows the learning of the wise, who fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. And of the towns of Judea, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to Cyrus, a pagan Persian king... He is my shepherd. He will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. Powerful. Powerful. 
And I love this because, I mean, God is just saying, hey, if I say a city will be rebuilt, it will be rebuilt. If I say a place is going to be repopulated, it will be repopulated. If I say that a future king to come decades from now, a guy named Cyrus is going to do this, he will do it because I am the sovereign God of history who rules over all things for the good of my people. And he not, he, this is such a, a clear and powerful example of God's ruling over kings and nations and events. But don't miss out that he also rules over you and your life and the things going on around you for your good. He said, this God said, this real God revealed in Isaiah, this God said, I am a rock. God is like a rock, unmovable, unshakable, utterly faithful, steadfast in love. You know, there, there's, an old, there's an old song that I, I kind of like. Um, I think Simon Garfunkel sang it about, uh, you know, my mama loves me. And she loves me like a rock. And, um, you know, God loves you like a rock. And the scripture says that he is steadfast in love. His love is unfailing, unending, unfailing, steadfast love, love like a rock. Verse 8, there is no other rock, I know not one. You know, nobody but God can be a rock to you. Not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your best friends. And no matter what perplexing things may happen to you, just like we're happening, incredibly perplexing, baffling, confusing things that were happening to God's people, Israel, in, in the context of this passage, just like that, no matter what perplexing things may, may happen to you or may be happening to you, God says to you, my purposes and my plans will not be shaken for you, for I am a rock, your God. I am the God who does not forget my people. Verse 21, I have made you. You are my servant. I will not forget you. God will not forget Israel. All his promises to them will stand. And God will not forget you either. People will forget you. Even people that you have done a lot for sometimes will forget you. But God does not. You are in his heart and in his mind forever. There's a verse, uh, I don't even recall right where it's at somewhere. Some of, I'm sure some of you know this, but he says, you know, I've, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. You know, I've written your name on the palm of my hand. I will not forget you. Even a, even a mother, even a nursing mother may forget her child, but I will not forget you. And most importantly, God said, I am the God who sweeps away your sins. Verse 22. O Israel, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Isaiah, of course, is looking forward to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, whom God would send to atone for the sins of of his people and for our sins. And I love this word picture. And maybe just to help you enter into this, I'd like for just a moment, picture the sins of your life, the sins of your youth, the sins of your past, the sins of your present, 
Picture them like a, like a dark cloud hanging over your head. And then picture this God who redeems you and loves you sweeping that cloud away and replacing it with a clear blue sky. That is what God does for you through Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said, The comfort that flows into your soul when sin is pardoned is like the clear shining after clouds and rain. There's just, just a feeling that we get, you know, when it's been stormy and cloudy and, you know, the, the, we've, we've had the tornado warnings and the thunderstorm warnings. There's just a feeling when all that blows away and we see bright, clear, blue sky. And that's what forgiveness is like. That's what God does with our sins. He sweeps them all away. And the amazing thing is here, um, our response certainly to that is to repent and turn to God. But, but primarily, we are to move on from there and to rejoice in our redemption. The response to having our sins swept away by this gracious, uh, merciful God is to rejoice. And verse 23 calls on all of creation to rejoice. Sing for joy, O heavens. Shout aloud, O earth. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and even all trees. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation and commentaries exactly what this means. I mean, is there some kind of literal thing here? Does creation really have capacity to rejoice? Is just this, is this just personification? Um, you know, I think Spurgeon may have got as close to anybody on this. He, he points out that when we are filled with joy, when your heart is filled with joy and you step outside into creation, doesn't it seem that all creation is joyful too? Uh, I mean, there's even songs that talk about that. I mean, if you're happy, man, the birds are singing. Uh, just seem, I mean, even if it's raining, it seems like a good rain. Or I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem that dark and heaviness. It's, there's... Uh, he just points out that when we're joyful, all creation seems to be joyful around us. In other words, our joy is reflected in creation. And so we are to have such joy in our redemption, and, and God pictures it in such a way that not only are we to rejoice, but it's like, man, the mountains are shouting, the trees are singing, um, everything in God's creation is rejoicing over the redemption of his people. So we are to, um, to burst into song right along with them. Well, all that God is and all he has done and such a God that we've seen just a little glimpse of here in this passage why are we not more happy in God? Why are we not more enthralled um, with our God? Well, I think this chapter gives us the answer. And that is this, that there is a powerful tendency to trust in something else, to turn to something, somebody else, other than to this wonderful, um, lovely, amazing God who's revealed himself to us. There's a, there's a powerful human tendency to trust in other things in place of the real God of the Bible. And I think we all wrestle with this in, to some, in some degree. 
And Isaiah, this chapter, verses 9 through 20, is uh, the longest and the most sarcastic uh, statement against idols uh, and putting our trust in anything else other than God. An idol is whatever you depend upon for meaning in life, for happiness, for security, and safety in the place of God. An idol is what you look to to help you, to save you. Verse uh, 17 of this chapter says, talking about these little images that that people carve up and, and worship, they're idols. He says, he prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. I believe that most people live their lives in a quiet desperation, looking for something or someone to save them, to make them feel better. Then, often feeling that there is no one to turn to, mistakenly, but, but still often feeling that there's no one to turn to, they turn to gods of their own making instead of God to make them feel better. It is especially sad for Christians to do this, to place our confidence in things other than God, because through Christ, this God that we're reading about here has been uh, revealed to us. And, and we, the, for us, the veil has been removed, and we behold him. We behold the glory of God through Christ. In these verses, the Lord uses sarcasm to point out the absurdity of making an idol to worship, uh, just the folly of putting your trust in anything or anybody but God. Verses 15 through 17, you, you use one part of a tree to make a fire to bake your bread, and the other part of the same tree you use to make a god to worship. With half of a log, he roasts his meat. With the other half, he makes a god and says, save me. And then verse 19, shall I bow down to a block of wood? Your temptation will not be to bow down to a block of wood, probably. But you might follow some teaching or some philosophy that you or someone else made up that didn't come, that didn't originate from God. Your temptation might be to set up a pleasure or a habit of your life that makes, that you, that you make your God. And the imagery here is that all of these idols are homemade gods. Now, there's a lot of things that are really wonderful if they're homemade, but the worst thing in the world you want to have is a homemade God. I mean, you want the real God, the God who reveals himself, the God of the Bible. Instead of someone that somebody else could think of, even I don't care how smart they are, instead of some idea or philosophy or teaching that someone else could think of, or something even that God himself has created... But that you, but that you just turn to for your security and meaning and happiness. Instead of something man-made or homemade, the Bible reveals to us a God that we could never have dreamed up—a God more majestic, a God more powerful, more loving, more full of mercy. 
than we could ever have imagined. Can you guys hang with me for a little bit here? Uh, you know, I, 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 was, I hate to go long, but I didn't get a start till pretty late, and I'd like to, like to finish this with, if, you can, if, you, if you're hanging with me, the last thing in the world I want to do is tire anybody out or worry out. Um, you know, worshiping an image in your home like is talked about here, an idol, an image, it might seem silly to you, but you have to remember that all the nations of the world did this at, that, at this time other than Israel. Israel was told to worship a God they could not see. Isn't that amazing? They were told to worship God who is spirit, an unseen God. And you have to remember that these nations who worshiped these images and idols were conquering the earth at this time. You know, they were like having success. (laughs) Things were going their way. And to the natural mind, their their idolatry seemed to be working. And so this is a real temptation for Israel. And even for us in our culture, it is, it is a real hard thing, I think harder than we might admit, to not worship what the world around us worships. Because, honestly, at times, it seems to be working for them. You know, people around us are worshiping success and pleasure and beauty and all that the world offers, and they, at least in some measure, seem to be doing quite well. I mean, you look at the entertainers and the stars on TV, you know, when they're, when, they're on their, when, they're, when they're on, they seem to be so happy, and you may feel like you're in the pit. And so you might be tempted to turn, maybe they've got something that I'm missing. And I think even stronger is the temptation to worship the world's knowledge. You know, the really intelligent people tell us that they're really intelligent and that we're really stupid if we don't agree with them. And so well, there's a temptation to worship what the world around us is worshiping. It's real hard not to. Good works can be an idol for some, and I know you might not think so uh, for those of us here, but boy, it's so easy to trust in what you're doing in order to get you to God. Um, Instead of Christ. You know, historically, people have put their trust in fasting or vows of poverty or some other kind of self-induced suffering, wearing hair shirts, beating themselves, and they think that they have paved the way to God by their works. But instead, of, they've created an idol of their own righteousness. You, you take away their religious disciplines and they would lose all confidence before God because that's what they're placing it in. Peter Tyler said that the guilty conscience may find rest, which is a false rest in two ways. It may, be fill, it may be stifled with the pleasures of this world, or it may be puffed up by abstaining from pleasures and self-induced suffering until a man is convinced that he is highly esteemed by God. I mean, there's just so many things that we maybe go through to try to put our trust in to get us to this God when the only way that we can come to him is through admitting that we have nothing to bring and putting our trust only in him, throwing aside all idols, everything else that we would trust in, and trust alone in Christ and in his mercy to bring us into his presence. Some people trust that they are just a common Joe, a decent guy, a caring person, a good person, maybe not better than others, but no worse, and they put their trust in that sort of 
living. But nothing that we can make or do ourselves can gain us any merit with God. We have nothing to bring to God but our brokenness and our sin. And the merit is all that of Jesus Christ. And it flows from God to us, not from us to God. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but merit or the righteousness of God, it flows from God to us, not from us to God. Uh, We don't climb our way up into God. We don't work our way to him. Um, It is only through Jesus Christ. And we find God when we turn away from ourselves and trust only in him. We experience God more more fully when we turn away. We, We experience him fully when we turn away from anything else that we would turn to, any other trust, and tell the Lord, you alone... There's importance about that word alone, as this whole chapter points out. You alone are my God and my trust in my salvation. I put my trust in you for for everything, for my life, for my salvation, for my family, for my emotions, for my church, for everything. I put my trust for my future. I put my trust in you alone. You alone are my rock. And that is how we more deeply and fully experience God, by turning and trusting to him alone. Real quickly, just applications this morning. Number one, return to God. Return to the real God. Wherever your heart may be this morning, just return fully and wholly to him, to trust in him. This chapter, as it is written to Israel, was a call to repent of their indifference to God, to repent for their ignoring God, for not giving God proper place. And so the end result or the application that God calls for is come back. Come back to me. Return to me. Place your hope in me. Secondly, do not turn anywhere else for help or salvation or meaning in life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, as John said. You know, just, just be wary, be cautious of falling into the trap of putting your trust in men and their knowledge and institutions of men. Nothing thought up by man can produce the spiritual security that you need, the inner satisfaction that you need, or can see you through the difficult times of life. And then the third and final application uh, this morning is just become completely absorbed with knowing this God. I mean, there is nothing, there, there is no goal that you can set before you that will, that will yield this kind of reward. Be completely absorbed with knowing this, this God. Get to know this God who is so wonderful and satisfying and comforting and sufficient. Make it your life goal to love and worship and trust God alone. Not, and not, I don't mean just in theory, but I mean actually make this the most, the supreme desire and goal of your life. That this is, this is, okay, this is what my life is about, you know, far more than really than real life church or strand construction or even my family, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, much of that, all that. My, this is what my life is about, knowing God, knowing and glorifying God. <clears throat> Make your life activities and your heart centered on this. And again, we don't do this by focusing on yourself. And some of you might be thinking, you might be looking at yourself, turning inward. Don't do that. 
Turn to this God who revealed himself. Um, we, we don't get to know and enjoy this wonderful God by focusing on ourselves, but by seeing who he is, by being over, overwhelmed with him, by understanding his love for you, that he chose you, that he will not forget you, that he will help you, that he has swept away all your sins. You focus on those things, and that's how you find your pleasure and joy and comfort in him. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Revelation is a work of God uh, to give you a capacity to behold the glory and the loveliness of God. And that is, that is what the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And you can ask for that. You can ask him to give. Paul prays for that, for a revelation, that the eyes of our heart would be opened, that we would behold um, this God, that we would have more knowledge of him. And see this God, that we might see this God alone, that he alone is good and great, that he is exalted and magnified, worthy of praise, and worthy of all of our trust, our complete trust, and our devotion. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this, the, the, this incredible chapter in Isaiah. And just from the moment that David started reading it this morning, I, there was just so much there, so, so, so powerful is your word and your description of yourself, Lord. And we ask graciously by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would open the eyes of our heart to fully, more fully grasp this and understand this and, and to, just, to just be awed of what a wonderful and loving, helpful God you are who saves us and redeems us, who, sweep, who swept away our sins, and we truly glory in you and we find our joy in you, Lord, so much. Amen.